always a pleasure for me to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, I hope that if you haven't already seen our exhibitions on view now, you'll return during regular museum hours. We have four really terrific shows, one on this floor, um, Story of the Civil War, told totally through textiles, including the noose that broke John Brown's neck, and um, some less gory things, but all, in, all really interesting. And upstairs on our second floor, we have three exhibitions, um, a photography exhibition drawn from a set of photographs that Bill Cunningham gave us um, in, uh, from the 1970s and our annual Audubon's aviary and um, really interesting, particularly these days, exhibition on um, the Black Fives, the basketball teams that played before basketball. The NBA was integrated in 1950. So... Um, if you haven't, haven't been to them, please do return, and um, I know you'll find them interesting. And uh, I also want to remind you about our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, most Friday evenings. There are flyers available on your way out if um, uh, you don't already have one. Um, tonight's program, The Civil War in 50 Objects, Part 2, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which allows us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. The program uh, this evening will um, last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask audience members to line up to my left and to my right in the aisles uh, behind standing microphones. We ask that you do that so that the speaker on the stage can hear your question, and so can the members of the audience. Um, following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. So um, I have to tell you that Harold Holzer has broken his arm in a few places, so he is not joining us this evening, but he'll be back, he promises. Um, but we are extremely pleased to be able to welcome back Eric Foner, the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. Dr. Foner is the author of many celebrated books on the Civil War, slavery, and reconstruction, including The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, which received the Pulitzer Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes. He's an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the British Academy, and he has served as president of several organizations, including the American Historical Association. Dr. Foner also wrote the introduction to the Civil War in 50 Objects, the name of the book that we produced right here at the New York Historical Society uh, on objects drawn from our collection. As always, before we begin, um, I want to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now please join me in welcoming Eric Foner to the stage. Okay, thank you, Louise. Um, I'm very happy to be here, as always, at the Historical Society. I am not Harold Holzer, as was announced. Um, I, uh, we wish Harold a rapid recovery from his injury, and we're very sorry that he's not able to be here tonight because of that. The original plan was for me to have a conversation with him. He is the person who really put this book together, of course, not me, um, but I did write the introduction, which gives me a little bit of an um, inside track there. But anyway, 
Um, I'm very happy to talk about some of the, about 15 of the 50 objects uh, in that book. And um, as Louise said, after a little, about quarter after seven, we will stop and uh, take questions from the audience. So please feel free at that point. Um, the idea, I believe, for this book uh, came from something the British Museum did a few years ago, which was a project called The History of the World in 100 Objects. And it proved very, very successful. Every month they put out another object from their collection, starting with very ancient ones and running up through the present. Uh, it was very popular, and uh, this is a way to showcase the remarkable range of the New York Historical Society's collections from the Civil War era, including documents of various kinds, uh, images of various kinds, artifacts, three-dimensional objects of various kinds. Uh, this society has a really remarkable collection of Civil War uh, material of one kind or another, and this, um, this book, is, which is fascinating, is just a small sample of that, but a very, uh, a very good one. So let us, I'm just going to run through uh, kind of highlights. It's, a, it's all highlights, but we'll run through highlights of the highlights. And um, let us, yes, here we go. I, I'm not very technological, but I think I can manage this. This first object is actually on display out in a case in the main entranceway. Um, it's easy to miss because you can't really tell from this picture. It's very, very small. This is a set a shackle for a slave, but for a child. It, it, it's the, the problem with projecting these images, which is, is that you don't get an actual sense of the physical size of the object. And in fact, I was looking at it before and I was shocked to see how small it is. It's very tiny, but this was used to restrain or to you know, hold a slave child. It dates from about 1800 uh, and um, it's a very vivid and poignant um, object. Um, when would such a thing have been used? Well, first of all, the slave trade from Africa to the New World or to the United States was still happening in 1800. It was not abolished until 1808 and South Carolina had re was reopening the slave trade uh, at that time. And so, oh, okay, thank you. And, um, but m more likely it was used in the, what we call the internal slave trade, the slave trade within the United States where slaves were sold from one place to another. Um, it's estimated that between 1800 and 1860, maybe two million slaves were sold and transported from one place to another in the United States. And children were included in this slave trade. Uh, children were often sold away from their parents, away from their families. Uh, most likely, this kind of thing was used actually to link two people, two children. In other words, you'd have one person say one in one, one's hand in one and one in the and another child's in the other, so they would be linked together for as they were transported over, usually overland or maybe on a boat from one part of the country to another for sale. So this is, this starts, this begins our account of the Civil War with slavery, which was the fundamental cause of the Civil War. This is what Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural address and everybody at the time under, understood that. 
This is a very famous photograph of Caesar, a very elderly ex-slave in New York, uh, around a daguerreotype photographed around eight, the year 1850. Now, in 1850, slavery had been abolished in New York, but not <laughs> rather slowly. New York, as a colony, had a pretty thriving slave system. We, we had a wonderful couple of exhibits here some years ago about slavery in New York. And um, in the colonial era, slavery was a significant part of the economy of New York City and New York uh, State or colony. Um, gradual abolition came to New York in 1799 when the legislature passed a law very gradual. It did not actually free anybody. It said that after July 4th of that year, the children born to slaves would become free after they had served apprenticeships of 21 or 25 years to their owners in order to compensate the owner for the eventual loss of their property in that slave. So slavery died out very gradually. Finally, in 1827, the final law was passed that decreed that anyone who was still a slave, there weren't a heck of a lot at that point, became free in 1827. And that includes Caesar, who was freed in 1827. But slavery continued in New York after that via what we call the right of transit. Southerners could bring slaves into New York, and many, many Southerners visited New York City. That's one of the things we showed in that um, exhibit. Many hotels catered to Southerners. Many businesses dealt with Southerners. New York was the center of the cotton trade. Many New York merchants were deeply involved in the slave system. And Southerners who came to the city often brought a slave with them, or more than one, and that was legal until 1841 when uh, New York barred slave transit. They said, no, any person who enters New York State henceforth is free except for a fugitive slave. Fugitive slaves, according to the Constitution, must be returned. But anybody who um, is brought voluntarily by their owner automatically came. But that's 1841. Shows you how late slaves could still be found on the streets of New York. Now, Caesar here actually was a slave of a family upstate near Albany. And on his tombstone, it says, I don't know if this is true. It says on the tombstone, he died in 1852 at the age of 115. Born 1837, died 1852. Is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a typo, you know, on the tombstone. He doesn't look to me like he's 113. He's pretty elderly. But anyway, whatever, Caesar is one of the very last slaves who was freed in New York State. And it's interesting that his family, his owner, or his former owners, he was working for them still, had him photographed. It was fairly rare to have a slave. You take, he was taken to a photographer's studio and photographed, probably as a kind of family memento or something like that. Um, whoops. I knew, I told you I was low tech. Here we go. Ah, all right. What is this? Well, we heard about the noose that John Brown uh, was executed with. This is a pike. It's, this is the opposite of those shackles. It's very big. You get a sense of that here. It's a long pike. John Brown ordered 950 of these in 1858 from a foundry 
in uh, an iron foundry in Connecticut. What was he going to use them for? Well, he had his plan to raid or assault the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia, to try to set off, to spark off a slave insurrection. Now, a federal arsenal is full of guns, right? That's the point. It's full of weapons. It's full of rifles. Why do you bring weapons along with you when you're seizing the federal arsenal? I don't even know, except, well, everything, not everything John Brown did was completely thought out. But I think the main thing is slaves had no experience with advanced weaponry. They didn't have experience with rifles and things like that. You didn't need a lot of training to use a pike like this. Um, so he brought these pikes along with him. They were not used. Uh, his raid on Harpers Ferry with 22 men in November 1859 was a failure in military terms. No slaves rose up to join his rebellion. They didn't even know he was coming. And there weren't a heck of a lot of slaves anyway. Harpers Ferry is in western Virginia where there was very little slavery. It was mostly an area of poor white farmers. It was far removed from the plantation belt of eastern Virginia where the bulk of the slaves in that state were. Um, how did John Brown pay for 950 iron pikes? Um, you know, he was not a man with a lot of money. He had been bankrupt a couple of times, lived very modestly. But by this point, 1858, he had well-to-do backers. He had a group called the Secret Six in Boston, which consisted of prominent reformers, ministers, Jarrett Smith, a well-to-do upstate New York abolitionist. They were willing to fund... John Brown, without even knowing exactly what it was he was planning, but they knew he was planning something and that it would be different from what abolitionists had tended to do. There was a crisis of the anti-slavery movement. The modern abolitionist movement had been founded in 1830, 1831. By 1858, there were far more slaves in the country than there had been in 1830. Nobody was abolishing slavery. No, they hadn't convinced very many Southerners to voluntarily give up their slaves. And the abolitionist tactic of what they call moral suasion, that is convincing the nation of the wrong of slavery, had not dented the institution of slavery. And so more and more abolitionists, who generally were pacifists, were now willing to listen to John Brown and the idea that there was a new method was needed, a new attack on new method of attacking slavery was needed, and that's what John Brown came along with. Now, as I say, his raid was a failure, but it succeeded in driving the wedge, or whatever metaphor I'm looking for, widening the gap, let's say, between North and South, of frightening white Southerners into thinking there might, this might just be the beginning of many invasions of the South of making many Northerners think that he was a martyr because he was captured, put on trial, he conducted himself with great dignity, and then executed, as we heard, and became a martyr in the North. So to the extent that he was planning to spark off a slave rebellion, his raid failed. But to the extent that he was trying to spark off a civil war, which would abolish slavery, it was a step, certainly an important step down that road. Um, well, speaking of the Civil War, here is a uh, little painting by um, 
Thomas Nast, the famous cartoonist for Harper's Weekly, departure of the 7th Regiment from New York City, April 19th, 1861, just a few days after the attack on Fort Sumter, the surrender of Fort Sumter, and the beginning of the Civil War. And here we see soldiers marching down Broadway, I guess it is, Lower Manhattan, and um, to the wharf where they're going to embark to be sent to the south or maybe to a train station to be going down to defend Washington. And um, what's interesting here to us, I think, is the flags everywhere. The Ameri this is what one newspaper referred to in 1861 as flag mania. Everybody putting out American flags as a sign of patriotism. What it, what it reminded me of, and it may remind many of you, was, is the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, when people just flew American flags all over the place. Flag mania, and th this is a kind of, at that time I thought back to the initial moments of the Civil War in this sense. And um, what was, what was real, you know, really sincere and genuine about both moments was that this was spontaneous. It wasn't the government telling people you've got to put a flag out. It wasn't commercialization of the flag. It was just people on their own, voluntarily, deciding to fly American flags as an expression of their devotion to the nation. And so Nast's, um, Nast's uh, a painting here is a symbol of the unity in New York at the moment when the Civil War begins. As we will see in a little while, that unity did not last, but certainly at the beginning, uh, it was certainly there. This is a Civil War uniform of what they call the Zouaves, or if that's the right pronunciation. This was worn by a private, David Davis, of the 5th New York Volunteer Infantry, uh, also known as Duryea's Zouaves, after their captain, I guess. This uniform is based on a kind of an outfit that French units used to wear in North Africa. Um, it was popularized by Elmer Ellsworth, who was supposedly the first casualty of the Civil War. He was a friend of Lincoln's, a younger guy from Illinois, came to Washington, and so very soon into the Civil War, Ellsworth noticed somebody in Alexandria, just across the river, a hotel flying the Confederate flag. And Ellsworth went there to tear down the Confederate flag, which he went and did, but then the owner of the hotel shot him. And he was killed, as I say. And Lincoln was very upset about this, because Lincoln knew him. But he was one of the first. But anyway, he, this Zouave uniform, which I guess Ellsworth was using, became very popular. Did people really wear this kind of thing into battle? Yes, they did. Not very sensible. It kind of makes you a pretty easy target, wouldn't you say? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think these Zouave units had high casualty rates. Um, eventually, it went out of style, and we know the blue and the gray are kind of uh, more standardized colors and uniforms came into being. But at the beginning of the war, you had guys going off to battle in these Zouave um, uniforms. This is a painting, an unusual painting, which we have here in the Society, of, from 1861 by the artist Francis Carpenter of Lincoln and his family, his three boys and his wife, Mary Lincoln, over there. It's unusual in that it's a, it's a private view of Lincoln uh, and, and his family. 
Um, Carpenter, the artist, later painted a very widely reproduced painting called The First Reading of the Emancipation Proclamation, where he, gathered, he imaginatively gathered all the cabinet together in his painting and Lincoln, and for the moment when Lincoln discussed the Emancipation Proclamation with his cabinet. And he spent a lot of time in the White House doing that, and he later published a book called Six Months in the White House, which Mary Lincoln hated and considered a breach of confidence that he had been living there in the White House and was now telling all these secrets of the Lincoln family. But anyway, when he did this, um, it's unusual because the family was rarely, if ever, together like this in the White House. Robert Todd Lincoln, the tall one, was actually a student at Harvard Law School at this time and wasn't around the White House very much. And uh, Willie, the youngest, died uh, 11 months into Lincoln's term of office uh, in 1862. So, but this is a private uh, view of the Lincoln family and, um, as I say, unusual in that respect. And it's, it's a, it is a painting, even though it's very black and white, uh, it's not very colorful. Why he chose to do that those particular colors, I'm not even sure, but, um, but there it is. Now, this is a broadside written by Frederick Douglass. As you see at the top, men of color to arms. And at the bottom, you'll see when it was issued, March 2nd, 1863. This is an address to northern, northern blacks, free black men in the north. Now, there weren't a hell of a lot of them. I think the black population of the North in 1860 was like 220,000, which was about 1% of the Northern population of 23 million. So if you break it down, 220,000, half of them are women, so that's 100,000, and then many of them are old, young kids. The number of eligible black men ready to serve in the army was relatively small. But nonetheless, the Emancipation Proclamation for the first time had authorized the enrollment of black soldiers in the Union Army. At the beginning of the war, the army was all white. The militia was all white. They did not want black soldiers. Lincoln felt, and many, that, if, that whites would not serve alongside black soldiers, that more people would desert than you would get into the army. But by the middle to late 1862, it was pretty clear you needed every man you could get. And little experiments were already being done in South Carolina, in Louisiana, of enrolling some blacks in the army. But the proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation, is the first time this becomes the official stance of the Union that now black men will, but they have to enlist. So this is a, a clarion call to black men in the North to enlist in the army. Uh, particularly, he mentions, in Massachusetts, the 54th Massachusetts, very, very famous black regiment, became very famous through the movie Glory 25 years ago. And um, even though it was called the 54th Massachusetts, they actually raised African-American soldiers throughout the North, from New York State, from Ohio, all over the place. And in this, Douglas forthrightly says... I urge you to fly to arms. Who must be free must themselves strike the blow. In other words, we don't want to just be freed by white people. Black men must fight for freedom just like anybody else. And in fact, he goes further and he says, remember Nat Turner. That's kind of provocative, one might say. Nat Turner, the slave rebel from 1831 who had 
led a band which killed about 50 to 60 uh, whites in Virginia before being suppressed. Remember Nat Turner. Remember, he says, Shields Green, one of the blacks who fought with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Um, Douglas had been advocating arming black soldiers from the beginning of the war, and now this was the option. But it was not so easy to get people, there was some resistance. First of all, blacks were not paid the same as white soldiers until the very end of the war. They could not become commissioned officers. They had white officers. They served in segregated units. They could not be promoted beyond the rank of sergeant until the very end of the war. And the Confederacy threatened to execute black prisoners of war, that not treat them, captured soldiers. They said, we don't recognize them as soldiers. They are slave rebels. They will either be put into slavery or executed. And we will not treat them as prisoners of war. So there were a lot of deterrents to enlistment. Nonetheless, the 54th and 55th Massachusetts were eventually organized. And eventually, something like 180,000 black men served in the Union Army, about 10% of the total uh, who served during the Civil War. And Lincoln came to feel that the black soldiers had played a critical, essential role in, the, in, winning, in winning the war. Serving in the army was one way of becoming free if you were in the, in the border states like Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland which, where the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply. Another way in the South was just heading to Union lines. This is a drawing by a soldier of slaves on a horseback and others coming into Union lines, coming to the Union army in Mississippi in 1863 from the plantation of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Um, historians sometimes used to debate who freed the slaves. And this is one of those questions that has a multitude of answers. Lincoln freed the slaves. Congress freed the slaves. The army freed the slaves. And slaves freed themselves. These are slaves who are freeing themselves by simply abandoning the plantation and coming into Union lines where, after the Emancipation Proclamation, they ought to be recognized as free. Um, Davis's plantation is very interesting. Uh, D Davis had his, of course, he's off in Richmond at the capital of the Confederacy, but he had these plantations in what was called Davis Bend a little peninsula formed by the circuitous course of the uh, Mississippi River. And um, General Grant, who was in charge down there at the time, said, I am going to turn Davis Bend into, quote unquote, a Negro paradise. And he said, we are going to allow the blacks to run the place by themselves. And so slaves on Davis Bend were allowed to form groups and actually grow crops for themselves, sell it, uh, have land allocated to them. Many people thought this would be a blueprint for reconstruction. As you all know, or you've heard the phrase, 40 acres and a mule, the former slaves wanted land. They felt that their freedom needed to be grounded in economic independence. And Davis Ben was a little, a little experiment in that, which was very successful. They they made a lot of money growing and selling cotton. The price of cotton had gone sky high during the war. But unfortunately, Davis Bend was not a blueprint for the post-war South, and very, very few African Americans were able to get land uh, after the Civil War. Speaking of Mississippi, this is kind of hard to see, but it's a newspaper from Vicksburg, Mississippi, printed on wallpaper. Why? There was no paper anymore. 
This is during the siege of Vicksburg. Vicksburg, this city, maybe some of you have visited it. It was the site of Grant's siege for a couple of months in 1863. Vicksburg, high on cliffs, commands the center of the Mississippi River with its armaments. It made it impossible for the Union Navy to pass by with its cannons. And um, Grant besieged it after trying to assault it and failing and, and bombarded it. And the people there were in this, you know, just surrounded and everything was running out and paper too. And the newspaper kept printing on whatever they could, in this case, wallpaper. Eventually, on July 4th, 1863, Vicksburg surrendered. And this was a major Union victory coming right at the same time as the victory at Gettysburg too, uh, opening up the whole Mississippi Valley to Union um, Union control. But this is just a little sign of the siege of Vicksburg. Now, this is a very unique object directly related to the history of New York City. This is a draft drum. The draft, the conscription. In other words, in 1863 in July, the draft comes into operation in New York. Both North and South had introduced conscription during the war. This is how it operated. They had little cards, and we have some cards too here in the collection, with the name, this is in like the Seventh Ward, something like that, the names of all the eligible men and their addresses on little cards. They throw all the cards into the drum. Somebody turns the wheel with that handle down there, and then an officer starts pulling out, pulling out names and reads them out. Okay, this is, you're now uh, going to be in the Army. Um, of course, as you know, when the draft was instituted in New York in July 1863, it sparked off a tremendous insurrection, really, the New York City draft riots, which lasted several days and only was suppressed uh, when troops were sent who had been just in the Battle of Gettysburg to come and restore order in New York City. Why were people so riled up against the draft? Well, number one, uh, both North and South, the draft was highly unequal in class terms. Well-to-do people could buy their way out of the draft. If you were drafted and you paid $300, which was a fairly substantial amount of money back then, you just didn't have to serve. So poor people, of course, didn't have that option. Or you could provide a substitute. If you were drafted, you could make a private arrangement with someone to pay him to go in the army for you. Again, poorer people didn't have that option. Um, but the draft riot kind of spiraled into an assault on all the symbols of the rapid changes that were taking place in northern society as a result of the war. They targeted the businesses of well-to-do Republicans. They targeted um, the homes of anti-slavery people. They targeted the Republican Party, its offices, the New York Tribune office, which was the main spokesman for the Republican Party in the city. And it became a kind of racial pogrom in which African-Americans were hunted down on the streets of this city and lynched. The African-American population of New York City was very, very small then. In 1855, the state census showed about 11,000 blacks out of well over half a million people in New York City. But the draft riot went after them. It... Um, as I say, nobody knows how many people died in the draft riot. The best estimate is maybe 100 or so, but quite a few of them were black people. Others fled to New Jersey. Some had to hide out in Central Park. So the draft riot uh, 
exemplified the divisions which existed within northern society. After that moment of unity at the beginning, deep divisions developed, and, um, and it showed that racism was alive and well in the North as well as uh, in the South. Another item related to the draft riot is this. This is a charred Bible from the Colored Orphan Asylum. On Fifth Avenue at 43rd Street was this orphan asylum for black children. And um, I think there were about 220 children in the orphan asylum when the, and the draft, the rioters assaulted the colored orphan asylum and set it on fire. Uh, and teachers led these frightened children out of the burning building. Some rioters yelled for them all to be lynched. Others said, no, no, protect the children. Some people at considerable danger to themselves led these children to a local police station where they could be safe. Um, one of the few things that survived was this Bible. You can't really see it, but around the edge, it's kind of charred from uh, being near the flames, but it didn't, it didn't burn up. This was donated to the Historical Society in 1938, a long time after the Civil War, by the son of a minister uh, who had somehow gotten hold of it during the Civil War, passed in his family to his son, and um, then given to the Historical Society. I, I mention that because every one of these objects has a, what we call a provenance. They got to the society somehow. Somebody donated it, or maybe the society purchased it at some time, but all these objects, they, they don't just land up here accidentally. They, they come in through often one way or another, but um, you know, in the book, it tells you about how these things got into the society. This is another, uh, now this is a very small thing blown up. It's a ticket, an admission ticket to the Metropolitan Fair or what they call the Sanitary Fair. Um, these were expositions held in many places during the Civil War uh, in the North uh, to raise money. They, they, were, they were organized by women, patriotic women, and it was a way that they could contribute to the war effort without, of course, being in the army. Um, they organized these giant expositions. This Metropolitan Fair in 1864 was an immense thing with displays of all kinds, all sorts of things for sale, a giant art gallery, uh, books, publications, food, tchotchkes of every kind. Um, that's not the technical term from the Civil War, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, there were displays. There was what they call a moving panorama of the war, which was a giant painting which moved sort of on a wheel. Uh, there was uh, relics of battles. There were Native Americans. Most New Yorkers had never seen a Native American. There were Native Americans doing tribal dances and songs. One of the things displayed there was the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, which is now on display in the new American wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, just across the park from here. And uh, Holzer, Harold Holzer, who works at the Met, uh, was telling us uh, one time that when they restored that painting for exhibition, they, um, they wanted to also put, create a frame like the original frame that it was in in the 19th century, but nobody knew what it looked like. But then they came upon here in the society a photograph of the interior of the Metropolitan Fair. 
And you could see this painting hanging there, and you could see what the original frame looked like. So they made a new frame, modeled on the frame in the photograph of the Metropolitan Fair. This is a, another tiny little thing, a medal to honor the U.S. colored troops, the black troops, particularly those in the Army of the James in Virginia. This was commissioned or ordered cast by General Benjamin Butler, who uh, was a commander or had black troops in the units that he was um, directing. The Latin, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, says basically, freedom will be theirs by the sword. Freedom by the sword. That's what the black soldiers are fighting for. And uh, Butler had this made to, uh, to commemorate them. This is a kind of interesting item. Uh, it's a banner, an election banner from the presidential election of 1864 when Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election. Um, it's in the, sh in the shape of a flag, obviously. And all the, all the uh, states are up there, including the states of the, the 11 states of the Confederacy. This, this includes all the states of the Union, including the Confederacy. Um, and it's just to be flown to support Lincoln and his vice presidential candidate, Andrew Johnson. Now, Lincoln's first vice president was Hannibal Hamlin from Maine. But in 1864, he was dumped off the ticket in uh, favor of Andrew Johnson. Uh, historians still debate whether Abraham Lincoln was responsible for booting Hamlin off the ticket. Lincoln said, I don't care who's vice president. I leave it to the Republican convention. It's hard to believe that the convention would have chosen Johnson if Lincoln, if they didn't think Lincoln was in favor of that. Hamlin didn't even want to be vice president. Being vice president was, I'm not saying anything about recent vice presidents, but back then it was a pretty pathetic office. As John Adams, the first vice president, said, the only purpose of being vice president is to wait around for the president to die. That's all you do. Most presidents don't think they're going to die or be assassinated in office, so they don't care who the vice president is. And normally, vice presidential candidates are chosen, I'm not mentioning any names, um, not because of their qualification to be president, but because they represent a faction of the party, or they may come from a state that is important, a swing state, where maybe they'll increase the vote. Now, Andrew Johnson is put on because he's from Tennessee. He's a Southerner, a Southern Unionist. He's the one senator from a seceding state who remained in his seat when Tennessee seceded. And when the Union took control of Nashville, Lincoln appointed him um, military governor of Tennessee. And um, Johnson distinguished himself by his harsh treatment of Confederates, jailing them uh, and forcing them to sign all sorts of oaths and things. And he became very popular in the North as a symbol of what many Northerners believed was a reservoir of pro-Union sentiment in the South. Now, remember... The Republican Party didn't exist in the South when Lincoln was elected the first time. He wasn't even on the ballot in most Southern states. But thinking ahead after the war, whatever happens and the South comes back, the Republicans have to expand into the South. And Johnson is a symbol of what they think is a mass of people. These non, he's a non-slaveholder. He's a yeoman farmer. He does not speak for the um, aristocracy. And those kind of people 
maybe someone like Johnson. So Johnson was very popular in the North. Many people thought it was great that he was put on. Of course, unfortunately, Lincoln is assassinated soon after he's inaugurated for a second term, and Johnson becomes president. All I will say is I think Johnson is a leading candidate for the title of the worst president in American history, completely unfit for office and completely unable to deal with the crisis of Reconstruction, which followed the Civil War. I wrote a long book on that. I'm not going to repeat it here. But um, all I can say is that um, many people who've supported, I remember a letter by one Republican congressman who said, I supported putting Andrew Johnson on the ticket, and God forgive me. This you can barely see, but it's a little chart that Lincoln, in his own handwriting, put together in the fall of 1864 for his, tallying up. You, you, you now see this online, or Nate Silver used to do this in the New York Times, figuring out the electoral vote, the probable, elector, probable electoral vote in 1864. Um, and even though it's very hard to see, uh, Lincoln is on the right, and McClellan, the Democratic candidate is on the left. And at this point, Lincoln thinks he's going to win by three electoral votes. He thinks McClellan's going to get 114, including New York State, and he will get 117. That's a pretty slim margin. In fact, just before the election, Congress admitted Nevada as a state in order to get three more electoral votes, because they Nevada, there was no one in Nevada except about five guys, and they were all Republicans. So they knew they'd carry Nevada. Um, three more electoral votes. Why was it so close? Yeah, Lincoln, they, what do you mean? Lincoln not getting reelected? Great man? What is this? Well, the North was very divided in 1864. There was great war weariness um, until General Sherman captured Atlanta in September 1864. Many people, including Lincoln, thought that he was not going to be reelected. There was just a sense the war was stalemated. The casualty rates in 1864 were enormous. And, um, but in the end, of course, Lincoln is reelected by a large majority. He gets 212 electoral votes to only 21 for McClellan. McClellan carries only three states. Two of them are the slave states in the Union, Kentucky and Delaware, and only one free state votes for McClellan, and that is a state which is always at the cutting edge of things, New Jersey. <laughs> they couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that slavery was coming to an end in New Jersey. Um, all right, we're almost out of time, to, but there's a couple more items, and then we will throw open for questions. This is a very poignant item. It's a sprig of laurel that somebody took from Lincoln's coffin when it was lying in state in City Hall on his funeral train, you know, on the funeral procession back to Illinois after his uh, assassination. Um, people would come and leave flowers or things like this on the casket. Sometimes they would fall off. This person picked this up, and it's written on there what it is. It has a little black mourning thing. Um, 150,000 people passed by Lincoln's coffin in New York City in the two days that it was lying in state uh, downtown. And this is just a little reminder of the, the first national funeral, you might say, in American history. And it kind of reminds us of that 
wonderful poem by Walt Whitman, When Lilacs Last in the Doorway Bloomed, what a beautiful elegy, where he speaks in that poem of people leaving sprigs of lilac on the coffin. But here it's laurel, and this is one of those from there. And finally, since we began with slavery, we'll end with slavery. This is a handwritten version of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed by Congress in 1864 and then January 1865. If you saw the Lincoln movie, you saw a fictional account of that. And um, oh, yeah, well done, but not history, so just remember that. Um, but, uh, and it was declared ratified in December 1865. The 13th Amendment irrevocably abolished slavery throughout the United States. It um, introduced the word slavery into the um, Constitution for the first time. The original Constitution had used circumlocutions like other persons, persons held to labor. They did not want the word slavery, although they put the thing in the Constitution, but the word was not there. But now slavery cannot exist in the United States. Now, Lincoln signed this copy, and members of Congress said, no, no, Lincoln, you're not supposed to sign it. A constitutional amendment is the one piece of sort of legislation in which the president has no role. It requires two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states to ratify a constitutional amendment. The president has nothing to do with it. It's not like a law which he has to sign to you know, pass by Congress. He signs that law. It's not like an executive order like the Emancipation Proclamation was. Lincoln signed it anyway to show his commitment to the principle of the abolition of slavery. So this is a fitting way to end our little presentation. We began with the slave shackle. We end now with the irrevocable abolition of slavery as a result of the Civil War. But if the 13th Amendment settled for all time one question, would this nation be half slave and half free, it opened up another question which was, what is freedom? What is going to be the status of these four million people who were slaves? What rights are they going to have? What role are they going to have in American life? The 13th Amendment does not address that. That becomes the fundamental problem facing the country in Reconstruction. And um, maybe one day we'll put together 50 objects from Reconstruction from the society. But anyway, thank you all for listening. And as I say, I invite... Thank you. I invite people who wish to ask a question to just come to the uh, microphone. And yes, sir. B Professor Foner, I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. Uh, the reason that New York City had only 11,000 blacks, was that because they were not hospitable to, to the runaway slaves and the well, slaves that came uh, to the Underground that's Railroad? That's an interesting question. Um, the free, the, and the answer is, to some extent, yes. Um, the, pop, the black population declined in New York after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which made the federal government responsible. Before then, returning fugitive slaves was a very haphazard thing, and states and localities had to do it. Many of them didn't do it. But now the federal government and federal marshals, the first fugitive slave arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was in New York City. James Hamlet, who had been living in Brooklyn, 
had escaped several years later. Many of the black population of New York were fugitive slaves, and many of them fled the city in 1850 and 1851. So as I say, the black population, which is about 13,000 in 1850, is down to 11,000 in 1855 with the census. But there are other reasons. This is a period of massive immigration from Europe, as we all know, particularly Irish, German, and they are pushing blacks out of even the low-wage jobs they had been um, relegated to, uh, like servants in homes, it's now all Irish, you know, the, the black servants are pushed out by Irish. Workers on the docks, there were many, many blacks working as stevedores. Now it's all Irish and German. So the job opportunities in New York were shrinking for blacks in this period. And the danger, by the way, it's not only fugitive slaves. People can be grabbed up under that law, even if they're free and sent back to the South as a, as a fugitive. They're not allowed to testify. You know, that law says the accused fugitive cannot testify on his own behalf. It's just the word of the owner that is brought to court. So New York was not a hospitable place for black people. And one of the reasons for that, as I said, it was so closely tied into the economy of the South. Um, that and the cotton economy that um, it was not as they say it was not hospitable for African Americans so it's a good question if I may ask a quick one. yes of course was Johnson a Democrat Andrew Johnson was Andrew Johnson a Democrat or a Republican Johnson Andrew, uh, jo Andrew Johnson yeah yeah well he was a Democrat before the war but he joined up with Lincoln to run in 1864 by the way they changed the name of the party briefly to the Union Party in 1864 but that was one of his problems. He really had no connection with the Republican Party. And after the war, he didn't know how to deal with Congress. He didn't know how to deal with the Republican leadership. He was a Democrat, but a Union Democrat in the South. And he joined up with the Lincoln administration to fight against the Confederacy. But he never really understood what the Republican Party was all about and that tradition of free labor and anti-slavery, et cetera. Thank you. Okay. Anyone over there? No. So go ahead, sir. I think I remember that there was an issue of greenback dollars in the Civil War. Absolutely. Which were not backed by anything other than the faith and credit of the U.S. Right. Uh, does the Historical Society have a copy? Have a greenback. A, a greenback. Um, I would be, I and, can't say for sure, but I'm sure that there is a greenback somewhere in here. Now, the greenbacks is an interesting thing. This was the first national currency in the United States. Mm -hmm. One of the things the Civil War does is consolidate the national state, the government. And this is the first time, before the Civil War, it's banks issuing money. And no one knew whether this money is worth anything. You know, you, someone says, I'm paying you in $5 from the Planters Bank of Jackson, Mississippi. Well, is that worth anything? Do they have anything to back it up? The greenbacks, you're absolutely right. The greenbacks are issued to help pay for the war, but they are, they're not backed by gold. They're legal tender. The government says this is legal tender. You must accept it, in other words. That's the law. And many... Creditors didn't want that. If I had loaned you money before the war, uh, that was money backed with gold, supposedly. Now you can pay me back in greenbacks. I don't want to get paid back in greenbacks, but it's legal tender. I have to accept it. In fact, <laughs> here's a dollar bill. Here's George Washington. What does it say on it? 
Federal Reserve note. Maybe the Federal Reserve has some backing. I don't know. <laughs> this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. You have to accept it. It's legal tender. The government says that. That's what it means. You've got to accept it. The only people who don't is on airplanes. You can't pay with money, right? They say credit. I don't know. I, maybe we should sue them. Um, but the greenbacks became a major issue after the Civil War because the government later starts retiring them, trying to go back to a gold-based, the gold standard. But many people like the greenbacks because it causes inflation and it stimulates the economy. And there was even a greenback party, in the a local party in the late, uh, in the 1870s and 80s, a greenback party named after a piece of currency. I don't, is there any other country that had a political party named after a piece of money? Did the French have a franc party? I don't know. Or the British have a pound party? No. But we had a greenback party. So anyway, that's an interesting sidelight on the Civil War. Thank you. I'm sure it's somewhere in the Historical Society. Thank you. Oh, there you are. Sorry. The light makes it hard to that's see. Okay. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned the Secret Six yeah. who were supporting uh, John Brown. Um, I'm wondering why the U.S. government never considered that a conspiracy and why none of them were indicted. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, they uh, scattered. Uh, uh, Jared Smith uh, checked himself into an insane asylum for a while. Uh, a couple of them fled to Europe. Um, the only one who said was Thomas Wentworth Higginson, a abolitionist in Boston, later commander of a unit of black soldiers in the Civil War. And he said, yeah, I helped John Brown. What are you going to do about it? You know, he was tough. And they didn't indict him. No, you know, first of all, it's hard to indict people for conspiracy, although governments do it all the time. You would have had to prove that they knew what exactly John Brown was planning to do. To give money to John Brown is not a crime unless you can Put it, no, you might have been able to create a conspiracy charge, but the problem is John Brown had become so popular after being executed, that, and particularly in Boston, a center of abolitionism, that it would have been very hard to get a jury to convict these guys. So it's a good point. Nothing was done to the Secret Six, uh, legally speaking, even though they had given money which was used in this, um, this attempted slave insurrection. Isn't it true also that, yeah. Fre that Frederick Douglass... Uh, was approached by John Brown. Absolutely. He did, he did know a bit about the plan. He uh, knew, yes. In his autobiography, Frederick Douglass explains, as you said, John Brown was in this farm in Maryland, just over the border from Western Virginia, and Frederick Douglass visited him there. He knew Frederick Douglass from previous times. And he said to Douglass, according to Douglass's recollection, he said, when I strike the bees, the slaves, will swarm, and I need a queen bee to lead them. In other words, I need a black man, a former slave, Frederick Douglass, great black abolitionist, to lead the slave. And he explained the plan, and Douglass says, this plan is never going to work. I'm not going with you. And he writes about this in his autobiography. Uh, so yes, John Brown wanted Douglass to go, but Douglass looked at the plan and said, this is suicide, and I am not, I am not going. Several blacks did go with John Brown. Most of the, I think there were five, there were 22 men, five of them I think were black and the rest were white, but several went with John Brown. Um, but Douglas uh, was too logical, so to speak, to, uh, to, to get involved in this plan. Hello. Hi. So, um, so when you showed the, the shackle, shackles for a child, you said, well, slavery was the cause of the Civil War. 
Um, and then um, when you talked about New York as an inhospitable place for, for blacks and also about the draft riots, um, you know, it's pretty clear that mm -hmm. uh, there, was, um, there were deep divisions simmering underneath the surface, at least, if not above the surface in New York, uh, not in favor of the war at all and pro-slavery, in fact. Um, so how do, you, how do you account for the Thomas Nast painting, that vision of unity? Well, that's a great question. You know, when we say slavery is the cause of the Civil War, as Lincoln said in his second, he said, all know that slavery is the cause of the Civil War, as if it was not even worth debating. That does not mean that every soldier is out there fighting about slavery. I mean, if, you know, any war, people are fighting for all sorts of reasons. Mostly they're fighting because there's a war. They fight because there's a war. They, they are patriots, or they're drafted, or their friends are fighting. Um, so what, to say it's the cause of the war is to look at the long history leading up to the war and what the source of the fundamental division between North and South was that led to war. Um, but I think it's a good point. At the beginning, of course, Lincoln said explicitly, this war is not about slavery, it's about union. The lowest common denominator was defending the flag, defending the nation, preventing the nation from being broken up. That led everybody at first to rally, as you say, Democrat, Republican. The issue of slavery was not on people's minds when Fort Sumter was fired upon. It was the South had fired upon the nation's flag and they had to be, you know, fought. Um, but as the war goes on, people become more and more cognizant of how slavery is the fundamental you know, institution of the Confederacy. And if you're going to fight them, you're going to have to eventually attack the infrastructure of their society. And more and more people begin to see slavery as something that is fundamental to the conflict. But that's something that takes time. It's a good question. It's a, it's a very good question. One, I think we have time for one more question. So yes, sir. And then... Yes, weren't there even discussions at the beginning of the war of New York seceding from the Well, South? it didn't. It, the governor, Mayor Fernando Wood, mm -hmm. who was in that movie as a member of Congress, you may remember, the Lincoln movie, Mayor Fernando Wood proposed, and by the way, there is something in the book, one of his statements is in the book, is one of our objects. He proposed that New York declare itself a free port, secede but not join the Confederacy because you didn't want to lose that trade with the South. New York should just declare itself a free city and trade with everybody. By the way, not that bad an idea now that you think about it. Um, but um, it didn't get anywhere, obviously. But that shows you Fernando Wood was a very pro-Southern mayor of New York City. And he felt the prosperity of New York City was based on its trade with the South, and he was afraid that the war would sort of disrupt that. Anyway, again, good wishes to Harold Holzer for recovery, and thank you all for coming. <laughs>